Imagine that you're in a deep, dense forest. You have a compass and a map to guide you, but each step that you take is careful yet deliberate. While you have these tools and others that illuminate the path forward, it is your intuition that burns strongest. You've done this before. It may not be the same forest, but you're familiar with navigating the unknown to reach your destination. But what happens when your intuition fades? You'll need a framework to help you get out. Like the expert explorer in the forest, Andy White understands the importance of having the right tools and techniques that guide him through the complex world of sales. And he does it all with the help of the Medic Sales Framework, a powerful compass that enables sales professionals to identify the right opportunities and engage with customers effectively. This framework is the very foundation upon which Andy has built his impressive sales career of nearly 20 years, even leading a business of the same name. As the sun's rays filter through the canopy above, casting a warm and inviting glow on the forest floor, our journey into the world of Medic is about to begin. From Paddle, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Andy White dives deep on Medic. We talk about what Medic really is, the three pillars of professional buyers, illuminating the vocabulary difference between sales and marketing, the attributes of a productive sales and marketing partnership, and how Medic works in hybrid environments. After you finish the episode, check out the show notes for an in-depth field guide focused on how you can implement Medic in your business. Then, while you're leaving your five-star review of the podcast, tell us what advice Andy gave that resonated with you most. First up, Annie talks about what Medic really is. My name is Andrew Davies. I'm the CMO of Paddle. And Andy, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi. Thank you, first and foremost, for the opportunity. This is great. Those that won't be able to see, I'm sat on a Paddle stage that looks incredible. Your branding looks sensational. So hi, I'm Andy White, founder, CEO of a company called Medic. Medic, for those that don't know, is a sales methodology. I think we probably talked a little bit about that, but it's it's been around a fair old while, but it's typically the sales methodology used by the world's most elite sales teams. So it's yeah, been around about 25 years. And what we do, we're very much you know a media company that helps organizations to become enabled on Medic, so help them to onboard their teams, make it a common language. And we're also a SaaS company as well. So we have a SaaS product launch at the end of this month. And yeah, so we, we kind of do that enablement operization and also we you know we try and bring those in the sales industry that are that kind of focus on being elites basically together into a community you've said you're a media company you said you're going to be a SaaS company we're going to dig into both of those in a minute clearly the team have made this very confusing my name's andrew your name's andy we're both <laughs> speaking with british accents there's gonna be lots of problems going through this and, and following this on the audio let's go back to the very beginning so we were just talking before this, this goes all the way back to the 1990s, PTC, Dick Dunkel. Why don't you tell us about the origin stories of Medic? Yeah, it's a really important origin story as well, because one of the great things about Medic is it's literally reversed engineered from how customers buy or importantly, how customers don't buy. So you've got to go back to 1995, you have an organization called PTC, which are still famous today for being yep. one of the most elite sales organizations. But the best sales rep I ever hired he made sure in his career, he worked for PTC before he came into earlier stage startups. So he got that sales training. Yeah. Like even nowadays, that's known as a, a place to manufacture great reps. Yes, yes, exactly right. And it was it was this place where they had an innovative technology. It was, it was you know, taking 
design basically mm -hmm. from being on drafts, you know, drawing out designs manually onto digital. And what you had there was probably the like strongest amount of talent in one place there ever has been. And what that meant was that from there, talent sort of creates talent and therefore it proliferated this sort of PTC mafia almost. So in PTC though, because they had this reputation for having this incredibly elite salespeople, of course, everybody wants to hire a PTC salesperson. So they started to have this issue of attrition, which meant that the new salespeople coming in weren't quite as performing as well as the old ones. So one of the things they did was they took a guy called Dick Dunkel, who was a salesperson out of the field. And they said to Dick, like, go and basically speak to other sales teams, find out what's going on out there. And let's try and like, enable this team it was probably one of the first examples of enablement back in the 90s. Let's try and up level everyone. And one of the things he did was he ran an exercise called why do we win? Why do we lose? And why did he all slip? And you just imagine a whiteboard with three columns on it. And he asks the sales team, you know, Boston sales team, why do we win? And they're all, you know, giving the reasons why they win, why do they lose and why do they lose? And what he realized as he traveled around the world and there's over a thousand salespeople, there was uh, six commonalities in the reasons why he won, why he lost and why deal slipped. And by deal slip, those that don't know, I mean that I say this deal is going to close on this day. It doesn't close. It is going to close, but it slips maybe into the next quarter or something like that. Mm. So these six commonalities, Dick, because he's very creative, he made it into an acronym, which therefore spelt MEDIC, which is metrics, which is the quantifiable value that your business provides. Economic bar, this is like the top authority. This is the kind of the person has the, the veto power. Then you have two Ds. The first one is decision criteria, which is, you know, speaks for itself. How is the customer basing their decision? Decision process, how do they make the decision? Then the I stood for identify pain. And then you had a C for champion. And what happened, they saw a lot of success from this. It, and then like it proliferated out. And we had some other great success stories along the way, like Blade Logic and John McMahon, probably one of the greatest sales leaders of all time, who was PTC sales leader and Blade Logic sales leader and then took over BMC and is now, you know, like I say, the goats of probably sales leadership. It's become like a common language in some of the finest sales teams there are out there. So that's kind of the backstory. story. There's that a couple of letters added in at some points and other things like that. Well, this is the thing. So you named your company Medic yeah. and then it's become Medic and MedPick and all these other extensions. Yes. So people have added in it, those extra kind of letters at different points. Yes. Uh, how many versions of this are there? Oh, well, that's a great one. Yeah, there's a lot. Not, well, I say a lot. There's, there is Medic with one C, Medic with two Cs, which is what my company's called. And I'd love to be able to tell you that I'm like, yo, the guy that loves Medic with two Cs. That was the dot com that was available. When I started, I was just writing a book where I wasn't going to start a business. I was okay. just trying to have a website that was relevant. I've always actually practiced MedPick. That's my okay. preference. Okay. So yes, you've guessed it. There's a P in there. And which stands for? Uh, paper process. Paper so process. The idea here is, if you imagine back in those 90s, everything was on-premise, much more straightforward. There was no data processing cloud agreements. So we see commonly now, if the deal slips, it's because the, the, the legal process, the paper process is taking yeah. on us. So the paper process allows salespeople to put more attention and time, you know, effort into making sure they understand where they are. So that's the one. And then sometimes people will add another C on for a compelling event. I actually once worked on an organization where we had a very particular risk in the sales cycle. And if it existed, we basically wouldn't be able to, to have a deal. And so we always, we called out an R. Fortunately, we put the R at the end and not after the P, which would be risky. Don't go there. I don't yeah. know what, if this is a PG audience, but I won't mention. No, 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 we're easy. More letters coming potentially. And I'm a CMO, right? My eyes are glazing over when we go to deep sales method for everyone in the audience listening to this, this is how you grow massive, predictable revenue through an outbound sales organization. I gotta be honest, sales kick off every year when it goes deep into sales methodologies, I'm out getting a coffee. But we're gonna talk in a bit about how marketing and sales teams need to work together around a strong methodology. But yeah, so so 
let's quickly dive into your business for a little bit first. So you yes. said a media company, yes. training company, there's a bit of a community, there's a SaaS business coming. So just give me the quick lay of the land about how you're helping people establish this methodology as something that scales their business. Yeah, sure. Great question. So I think one of the things that I started to realize was that despite looking around at the, the sort of the elites of our industry, you know, mm -hmm. the snowflakes, the data dogs, data robots, these, these real great companies, they're all using medic, but no one was really talking about it very much. It was kind of like, and my theory was always those people that know it so well are out there crushing it so much they don't have time to stop to talk about it, right? Okay. And I had had all the success as a sales leader using it as part of my playbook. And I wanted to basically level up as a to become a CRO someday. Mm -hmm. That was my goal. And I thought that, you know, one thing I could do is sort of showcase my knowledge and, and, and success I'd had with medics. So I wrote a, a book about it, which then led to kind of what was initially supposed to be this idea that it would just be like a big business card, right? To get better jobs. But what I realized was as that book came out and it started to get some publicity, people were coming to me and saying, hey, look, like no question about it. We love Medic. It's, no one questions Medic. No one's like, it doesn't work for my industry or my size of deal. Everyone gets it. The challenge they have is because it's effectively open source that if you advertise, you know, an AE for Paddle tomorrow and you put on there, we would like you to know Medic then, and I really want that job. I'm going to Google it and I'll probably find a HubSpot article and it will say five minutes at the top and I'll read it and I'll know what the letters stand for. And that's not knowing medics. So one of the challenges was around operationalizing it. Like how do we really get teams credibly enabled on it? The other challenge was how do we bring it into all the other things we do, into the sales process, into the other go-to-market teams? And these were big challenges that still exist today out there, even some of the companies that are having tons of success with Medic. So I started to think about this and the software side of things was always the North Star. I always wanted to build a software company because that's where I come from, right? I'm a software guy, sales software guy. I'm not a product guy. So that was always the goal. And I thought, well, how can I help us to get towards that goal, build customers, build advocacy? And I thought, well, I keep getting asked to go and do training. I didn't want to go and do in-person training. That's consulting for me and that's you know that's build once sell once kind of thing and so we built an online program that's been you know really successful people you know had a lot of success from it and that's kind of that's the media part and that's we were always you know we had we had a free four person marketing team before we had any product people or any technical people so we built that sort of those things first in mind just because that's so much about what we do and then the you know the software product has been developing in the background and is you know almost ready so i'm really excited about that Next, Andy talks about the three pillars of professional buyers. Well, we'll make sure the book is in the show notes. We'll make sure if the SaaS product is out, we get to promote that as well. Let's just talk a little bit about, I know you talked to this many times, the sales and marketing divide. In many outbound sales organizations, there's this, you know, never the twain shall meet between your marketing organization, your sales organization. How does marketing engage with Medic? How, how have you seen that worked well? Yeah. The way that I like to break Medic down, so those that wouldn't necessarily be in sales or those that don't have the time to sort of really get it quickly, is there's three pillars of professional selling for me. There's value, there's stakeholders, and there's process. Okay. If you think about how marketing can impact each one of those, obviously value, it's critically important that marketing underpin value, whether it be with case studies, whether it be with visualization of value, all the things you know you do very well. So that's an obvious one. We can dig deeper into these. The second one is stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So in, in Medic, you have the champion, you have the economic buyer. The best marketing teams I've worked with, we're so in sync on this. We have champion events. So we have events specifically designed to build champions. And I know you guys are brilliant at this. We have events specifically for economic buyers. We have content specifically for those personas. Yeah. So we start to really think about not just who, but what is the value for those specific people. And then the other one that always gets overlooked, and this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, but is process. Process is this kind of thing that sort of seems like everyone thinks has to happen. 
But it's, of course, it has to happen. You can actually accelerate it a lot if you really focus on it. And so marketing can help with that. Because if you look at the sales process and you look at, you know, where, the, where, are, the, where are the hurdles? Where are the bottlenecks? You'll find they're probably legal. They're probably procurement. They're probably security. Now, marketing are really, really good at helping answer big questions at scale. So if you can find those problems via something like Medic, where you spot those issues, and then get marketing to say, hey, we're going to do an FAQ because, okay, hey, we're paddle. This is really complicated payments. We're going to do an FAQ of the top 10 questions that get asked by security teams that might just accelerate that deal one week, two weeks, three weeks, okay, back and forth. Value, yep. stakeholders, and process. process. Okay, yeah. and marketing can impact all three of those. Yes. So give us some practical examples about how you've seen that actually come to life in yep. you know, any one of those to start with. Let's go in value because this is definitely the most exciting one. So there's two key parts here. The first I'll talk about is metrics. Metrics, nobody ever questions metrics. You know, the idea of quantifying the value your solution provides to your customers, unquestionable. The challenge that exists is first and foremost, customers don't necessarily know their numbers. Yep. They don't know about what problems you can solve. And sometimes they're a bit hesitant to share information because you haven't won the credibility to do that yet. You haven't proven to this customer that you are a, a viable solution provider. But you kind of have if you've done it before, right? So some of the great stuff that I know that April was talking about on your previous podcast and other people about using stories from existing customers, using proof points from existing customers to be able to teach the customer the art of the possible, but not just via you telling them about features and benefits, by you telling them about, hey, I did my research ahead of this meeting. And one of the things that I noticed was you are quite similar to this company that we work with. Before we worked with them, they had these problems. Do any of those problems resonate with you? Yes, they do. Yeah, good. What you're probably seeing then with those problems is that they're causing these pains and it's costing you this much or it's, yep. it's, it's inefficient for these reasons. Yes, yes. Okay. Let me tell you about how we solved it for that organization. Let me tell you about how much value they got from solving that. Let me yep. tell you about how we do it differently, better or in a differentiated manner from everybody else. Now that sounds great, not necessarily easy. So the way that we do that in a working of a marketing sense is we break this down into two and three parts. So the first is we would call that an M1, metrics one. This is where you're using proof points from your existing customer base to find relevant use cases aligned to real references to go and have that conversation. So I can point, if I'm, if I'm meeting Nike, I can point to Adidas and talk yep. about the value we have there. Yep. The salesperson's goal then is to migrate the M1 to an M2 where we stop talking about Nike and we start talking about Adidas's numbers. And then the M2 becomes an M3 when I win the customer and I pass it over to post sales and then they have some KPIs to work with. Okay, obviously there's more to this, but bringing this back to how this works with marketing, marketing are brilliant at compiling areas of value. They're brilliant at getting use cases together, references together. What they miss is the mechanism to give it to the sales team to inject into the conversation, whether it's an elevator pitch, whether it is a literally slide deck, whether it's on a podcast or something like that. And so what this does is it gives a framework from marketing to capture and pass back. And the best bit about all this is that M1 to M2 to M3, once that M3 is achieved, once we've got the customer live, goes back in the top of the funnel as an M1, you've got a go-to-market flywheel there of value you can provide. And now Andy talks about illuminating the vocabulary difference between sales and marketing. One of the difficulties between, you know, in sales and marketing teams working together is, is often a vocabulary difference. And, you know, my preference is always marketing to learn sales vocabulary because it's often easier that way rather than, you know, me talking to you about leads and me talking about open rates. 
I need to learn about opportunities and stakeholders and champions. Yeah. Um, because I'm, if I'm talking your language, we're both gravitating around the thing that's really moving the needle for the business. Three simple metrics there, M1, M2, M3, that we can lock into and provide a menu for us to walk through in order to support your organization more effectively. Yes, exactly okay. right. So that that's one part. And the last part that I kind of touched on a little bit is where you use the decision criteria, which is another part of now, most people, when they think about decision criteria, what they're thinking about is, I'm a salesperson, I'm going to meet with a customer and they because there's an active opportunity, and I want to try and understand what is the criteria in which this customer is basing their decision upon. So what is like, the, what are the things they're looking for? What are the things that are important? Maybe I might rank them in order of importance. The problem is, and I think we all know this, is customers are not experts at buying your solution. They just, they shouldn't be. If they are, then there's something wrong. You're selling for the wrong person, right? Yep. They've got a day job. They've got other things to think about. So if we walk in and we expect to try and align ourselves to what they're looking for, at best, we're going to do a bad job because they don't, they're not experts. At worst, we're aligning ourselves to the, our competition's strengths because they've gone ahead of us and influenced it towards their strengths. In the context of how this works with marketing, if you can start to really identify, flip it about being reactive decision criteria, be proactive. If I'm going to go and meet a customer, I'm going to be thinking in this meeting, hypothetically, if I walked into that meeting, that customer said to me, what are the three things that we don't know? What are the three things that we absolutely should be looking at? Yeah. How ready am I to go with those three things? Would I just reel them off? Oh, glad you asked. One thing, two things, three things. Probably not with the standard selling that I see out there because there's so many different paths to it. But if we were to get marketing to engage in sales, where actually we really, really are going to define what things are technical differentiators, commercial differentiators, relationship-based differentiators, and then be able to have all of these things attached to use cases, attached to M1s as well. You start to get this full view. It's like a common language that goes from marketing to sales and then, of course, to post-sales as well. So we've gone through metrics. Any quick examples on stakeholders or process before we move on? I think I touched on the cup with the stakeholders and process, just that idea of really defining. I'll give you a great anecdote. One of the exhibitors here, Great company. I love them to death. I won't say who they are because they might embarrass oh. us a little bit. You know, it's who gave me my beer earlier. That's how much they love me, right? They are brilliant at persona marketing. Or so you'd think you go on their website, they've got everyone mapped out, all their customers. They had a scenario where they implemented MedPick and they were reviewing their Q4. What they noticed was that 85% of their one deals, the persona of their champion was one persona, one type of person, one job role, basically. Okay. The terrifying thing was not only did they not have any persona marketing for that person, right? This is a company that has loads of persona marketing. The terrifying thing was that they were proactively discouraging their sales team from engaging with this persona. Yep. But this persona was their champion in 85% of deals in their biggest quarter. Flipping that on its head, now they know that they're going to create the persona champion. They can create collateral content, support events to go for that person and, and really helps their go-to-market across all parts of the go-to-market for them. So I think that's, that's an example. And I think I touched on the process one, but just having, I recently spent more than we've spent on any software combined on one platform. And one of the things that really, really swung the deal in this vendor's favor was their SVP of, I think, content marketing or product marketing, I think it was, offered up an hour of his time to advise me and our marketing team about something they had done that they'd heard in our conversations that we want to do. And that is powerful. Sometimes, and I'd love your thoughts on this, sometimes I think this is exposed as in that level of rigor is exposed in the account map. Often when I go into an organization, which I've done many times to look at their demand gen kind of infrastructure. I, yes, ask for, do they know their target accounts? How many personas have they got live or active within those target accounts? You know, looking at those metrics from the top of the funnel downwards before we get to opportunity. 
And often the bit before opportunity is how many sales reps have actually done the mapping of their accounts and understand who those people are. Who are these different decision makers? Who is the technical buyer? Who's the economic buyer? Who's the user buyer? Who's going to be that champion? Because when you start talking that level of detail and you've got a significant coverage of your in-quarter pipe has got that account map, that's where marketing can now engage and build an event for champions or build a persona guide for that person you're not yet representing. It becomes a common language and a structure to fill out. You know, it's a structure, you know, the Lego bricks actually build those yeah. stages of execution. Yes, exactly right. And I think sometimes that stakeholder example is a brilliant example, but it also goes further into other things, including decision criteria. To give you another wonderful anecdote, which I think is just going to appeal to so many people. In my last sales leadership role, we had a product that was a marketing technology product, and we sold it to one of the biggest e-commerce companies in Europe. And what we found out in month one post-implementation was there was a use case that nobody had seen coming. In fact, it was our champion that identified this use case back to us. And they said, do you realize how much this is saving us? Yeah. It was an advertising use case. This is saving us in two weeks what your entire product cost us. And it was not a small deal. It's, it is a significant amount of money. In that normal environment, in a, in a technology company, that's like good to know, on to the next thing. In this instance, because we used MedPick, that became a defining part of the decision criteria. Every single e-commerce company went to see, we went into that conversation as that as a highlight that we absolutely were prepared to be able to talk to the customer about. And we knew that if that appealed to them, no one else could do it. It was a unique differentiator. But if you take away the framework there, it just becomes sort of like, oh, can you send me those slides? And what are we calling this thing now? In this case, this company, they were able to like coin a phrase, coin a use case and really put some value behind it. Next, Andy and Andrew talk about the attributes of a productive sales and marketing partnership. If we just kind of zoom out a little bit, and you think about all the companies you've worked with, what has been the most productive sales and marketing partnership or what were the attributes of that? Yeah, so I once worked with a lady called Anya Ali who um, was VP of marketing at a company he worked at called Pop. Mm -hmm. And great marketer. Mm -hmm. And they're a commerce platform, home. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yes, yes. Anya's, Anya came from the, the school of thought that's particularly around closing deals, marketing a partner to sales. So we would have a scenario where we would work hand in hand to identify, going back to your stakeholder map, stakeholder map, we'd identify who is it we're trying to engage with, how can we engage with them? And sometimes we would reverse engineer that. We'd be like, oh, this person's really into fashion. Okay, well, what can we do there? Perhaps let's book a box at the London Fashion Awards, which we did. And then, you know, these, these things are like super long tail, but they actually do come off sometimes. So that would be one. And it was just the best partnership I think I've, except for obviously now have the world's best head of marketing. I have to give a shout out to Jess. But as a sales leader, that was, that was the best experience I had. Okay, so a real empathy from the marketing leader yes. about you know, the pressure you were under, how she could back you up, how she could open new doors for you. Yeah. And, you know, she would come into deal reviews <laughs> and sometimes some of the sharpest perspectives came from her because not only had she had a great background, pedigree in sales from working in sales so long, but it's a fresh pair of eyes. And also here's a tip, like if you're a salesperson listening to this, go and find the department in your business that buys technology like yours 
yeah. and sit with them. Yeah. I've learned more about sales since buying software than the rest of my career combined. Yeah, I think as a company scales, those that collaboration has to become something you program and train. It's got to be something you fund within the organization, right? Yeah. That time, ta it takes time. It takes meetings regularly. It takes a process for that communication. But I think often it gets lost in a scale-up process and you'll have it between some of your best reps and your best marketers. So any ways that you make sure you calendarize or program that feedback between marketing and sales? Yes. So there's a, there's a few things that are really important here. The first is it's all in the culture and trying to build that team that everyone's pulling in the same direction together. We, you just need to like eradicate this idea that, you know, marketing has their goals and sales has their goals. And I think if we, if you really get everyone from the top to the bottom focused on the same goal, which is in our industry, let's be honest, it's growth, then that allows, it kind of lowers any kind of barriers for any reasons why people wouldn't be aligned. But I really, really think, and this is one of the things that why MedPig works so well, is that if you bring, let's say, in a dual review environment, together. Let's just go back to that deal review as an example. One of the things that Anya was great to be able to do in those situations was she would come in and she would give great advice. But the other thing she was able to do was to be able to react to mm -hmm. things. So she would say, okay, well, we've got that wine tasting event. Let's get that person along. Or she'll yeah. say, well, why do they not understand that we're differentiated them? We're like, well, we can't get it across them. It's like, okay, let's create some content for that. Let's, yeah. you know, let's do a webinar for that. And so I think it's really just about making everyone realize, I think this time in my career was probably the time, particularly around this 2018 year, the entire company was aligned behind the goal like I've never seen before. It was a very, very, a very proud thing for, I think, everyone involved in it. But it was just that everyone pulling in the same direction. So there's two things here from a marketing leader standpoint that I think are, are really actionable. The first thing is that you've got to create space in your marketing function to react to what sales need in quarter. So holding back 30% of resource time budget in order to be able to do that. The second thing is that one of the ways I've found it really effective to kind of build a process for this is building a menu of options of how we can react to sales needs. Yeah. So whether it is a pop-up wine tasting or a custom message from the CMO or a CEO or a local steak dinner or whatever it might be, showing sales the math of how much that costs, how much lead time you need, how many of those you can do on a weekly basis, and actually offering that menu so the sales can pick and choose when something's a, yeah, an account they really want to move the needle on, they know to make a bigger ask knowing yeah. it's on the menu. I love that. That's a great idea. I'd love to have had that as a, as a salesperson. That's Serious, really cool serious decisions. I mean, you are now acquired by Forrester. They had a really good practice around this about that sales enablement process and how marketing could deliver that sales acceleration. I think it was really, really interesting. And now, how Medic works in hybrid environments. Let's pivot slightly. At this conference here, you're obviously, everything we're talking about now is outbound. It's predictable revenue. Is how do we go and win those whales? It's ABM, ABX, if we're not going to use the marketing methodology. <laughs> Does this work with product-led growth too? You must be working with some companies that've got a bit of a split motion, a hybrid motion. You know, does this work in that environment or how do you see it tailored? Yeah, I was laughing because I saw a tweet the other day and I don't think I can quote it, but it was basically like someone said, you know, it's uh, probably like marketing is like, it's just a demo. And I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that, but it was kind of fun. It will make you fun of it. I just think that we've been talking about this for years in sales about how our prospects are deeper in the funnel than we know. And, you know, they're, they're doing more research and stuff like that. What we're in a, bringing a product like growth context to sales, they're getting deeper in the funnel. Why don't we focus on making sure that when they're using the product, mm -hmm. when they're, you know, they're, they're evaluating it, that we're elevating all the things we would do if we were sat there with them. Oh, by the way, ABC uses this feature you've just yep. looked at and it's increased their ABC by 5% or you may, you know, and just sort of adding that 
sales context that we would do if we were doing a demo. One of the things that I heard someone talk about recently, I've never done this in my career, but someone was talking about one of the things they like to do is get the customer to give them like a reverse demo where they're like, they get them to show them their current solution and like talk about why that's bad. And I think sometimes like if we put ourselves in that, that situation of what would we do if we were there with a salesperson, if we were there with a customer when they're evaluating these <laughs> solutions, what things would we say? And I think bringing that together with marketing it's really about making sure that those points, almost like those, those hints and tips, those, those sort of nuggets of gold, those use cases yeah. are sort of dropped in in the, the sort of go-to-market team so that when the sales team comes in, they can kind of pick them up and explain the differentiators. But I think product-led growth is, is brilliant. I think we all can talk about this because we've all been consumers. We've all been frustrated yeah. when we wanted to use technology and been sort of put behind a wall so we can't use it. I think it's only going to be, I think it's like all these innovations, those that are really good will prevail. And those that are not doing a great job, that aren't really thinking about the customer and the value that we're trying to solve for the customer and the pain they're facing and how we can provide true value, they'll be left behind. One of the shifts that we're seeing, and marketers, we love an acronym as much as sales do <laughs> with Medic. Our acronyms are better and shorter, but apart from that, we're seeing MQLs move to PQLs. So instead of marketing qualified leads, move to product qualified leads. And in a product-led world, that becomes really interesting, right? Because you're just getting more data. So if you're selling into a large account, we've already got 10, 20, 50 people active in a freemium or a reverse trial or a trial of our product, this becomes really interesting because we can give you that data and surfacing you that data helps you build a much more effective account map, yeah. right? So it should give you more data to have an enterprise sale, but less. Yeah, I love that. You know, the idea of me as a salesperson getting like not just a, a lead come through and I do my usual due diligence, looking where they've been and who where they've come from on their, their you know, LinkedIn and stuff like that. Being able to see where they came from and then what they interacted with in the product. Powerful, particularly, you know, with solutions that have more broad use cases, you're going to be able to tell a lot about the person's intentions and they're probably their, their supposed pain with that. And again, going into preparing for that first conversation, if I'm selling a, a broad HR solution, and I can see that the person's been taking the trial or using the trial and they've been all about performance. They're all about, you know, individual training or whatever, you know, whatever the tenant is inside of the solution. Then I'm just going to turn up to that first conversation being super relevant. And if I can back it up with, hey, I, this is probably interesting to you, another company like that, like you that we've worked with before, here's what they saw. It's just going to accelerate you to that position of trusted advisor, which is what we always work for. We did a panel recently where we spoke to champions. So people that, you know, lots of technology. Yep. And we sort of asked them, and one of the questions we asked was, you know, we call you a champion and we explained why. What do you call us? Like in that scenario where you are our champion, trusted advisor. That's what they call us. And that's what they want, a trusted advisor. Do one more topic and then we'll probably close and ask if there's any questions because if everyone's been, you know, stopping drinking Guinness in order to be in this audience, <laughs> there must be true sales methodology geeks. So I'm sure there's going to be some it. questions here. One of the key pivots in building a sales organization, the first kind of chasm you've got to cross is going from founder-led sales to hiring your first sales leader or going your, to your first quota-carrying rep. Founders find this really hard. I found this really hard. Yeah. You know, in my first business, I was one of the two founders. We closed our first few hundred grand of revenue. And then suddenly hiring a sales team, I mean, it's a very expensive way to you know, get nowhere over that next couple of quarters as people are getting trained up and you're trying to get all the stuff out of your head and into an organization. How early do people start using Medic? Yeah. Is this something that founders can use? We've got this room is filled with pre-seed, seed, Series A founders. At what point should they consider this? Or is it really just a big company problem? I think there's a lot you can get from solving that problem you talked about out there with Medic because what makes founder-led sales so effective where generally founder-led sales, not always, but they generally say, hey, I don't know how to sell, but you know we've done all right. And then they pass it over to someone that does know how to sell and there's like that little fall off. What is making them successful is a few things. Domain expertise, because they created a company, of course, they're going to know a lot about it. Backed up with passion, obviously, but then that, when you combine those two together, because they're probably solving a problem that they'd had themselves. 
So if we go back to that M1 situation where we're saying, hey, we work with this company, they have this problem, and this is how we solve it. That is effectively a founder's doing that. The only difference is they're not talking about a problem they solved with their company. They're talking about a problem they used to have and they hated it so much. They had such a big problem, they formed a company to solve it. And so if you think about that, and think about what we're trying to, what you're trying to talk about there, which is scaling into having a sales team and getting that like that beautiful, genuine passion selling across and trying to scale it. You just need to productize the before, the after, and the delta between the two, which is the pain they would have felt, you know, and and which therefore becomes a metric, and then that can allow you to empower new starters to say, look, you know, you may not be an expert in this field. I don't expect you to be because you're an expert in sales. But here's like here's the problems that our customers face. Here's how much those problems cost. This is what it means to them. This is the pain that gets implicated. The good news is when they use a solution like ours, this is how much it solves that pain. This is that utopia state that you can look forward to. And here's the value for solving it. I love that. And just to reaffirm for founders in the audience, people who are listening to this, going from founder-led sales to a sales leader, it's codifying a huge amount of information that that person is holding naturally in their brain, very intuitive type of answers. Yeah. And I think frameworks like Medic are a really powerful way of unlocking that transition. Most founders I know, they are framework junkies, mental model junkies. And thinking about Medic as one of those mental models, something you've got to build the muscle around as a founder so that you can communicate to your first sales leader and your first marketing leader, that common language, I think is a really good way of bridging that gap. And if you don't have that vocabulary, that framework, I think there's, that's often what the chasm is. We're going to finish up there. And we've got one question here. Fantastic. Do you want the mic or do you want a shout out? The question wasn't, what does the D in medic stand for? Which is great first question. I, I was expecting myself to have to ask that one. <laughs> so we're asking, let's turn this around, Andy. How do you train your founder on this? Yeah. So I think if you think about those things that I'd mentioned as sort of the high level pillars of say selling, value, stakeholders, and process, I think everyone's different. But the way I always learn things is I like things to be given to me in an example or an analogy. So if there's something that you guys are evaluating for your business, buying, and then start to like flip it, what things do they care about? What, what things, if it's, if they're seeing things differently when they're talking about selling from how they're thinking about buying, then that's disconnected. It's almost like when you bought, like if there's something you've bought, which I'm sure you have, where it's like CRM or HR software or something like that, that see if you can find one where the founder was aware, the vendor themselves did a really good job of positioning themselves and therefore one, and then have a discussion and try and reverse engineer what are the things that they did. And I guarantee you, I mean, you can kind of lead the witness a bit because we know these things will exist, but there'll be a real situation where they connected, they built trust and credibility because they understood your business. They understood the pain that existed that they were there to try and solve. They could then demonstrate value in solving that via proof points of other existing customers. And then there'll be the other parts of it as well that they would have engaged with the right stakeholders and brought in you know, your peers and that sort of thing. And then they would have managed the process to not, and this is one thing we get so wrong in sales. We talk about closed plans. We talk about getting a deal signed. Customers don't care about that. They really, really don't. They've got a number of checkpoints, procurement sign-off, budget sign-off, legal sign-off. These are all checks in a box. Getting the signature on the paper, that's another check in the box. What they really care about is go live. And so if you engage on the basis of, hey, this is, let's go back the go live back from there. I've gone a bit off piece on your question, but I just, that's a bit of a rant that I always go off on. But the point being is I probably in that good experience, the, the founder would have felt confident because they managed the process very well. And, and I think if you can have that conversation, it will start to make them realize, actually, yeah, okay. Selling is basically just assisting buyers to have a great experience. I love that. Sales is just assisting buyers. Cool. Any other questions here? Medic, MedPick, sales methodology? 
Fantastic. Well, thank you, Andy. Really appreciate your time today. It's great. We'll be making sure we record this and put it out. We'll be editing it, putting it out in a month or so's time. Thank you, everyone, for coming along. Thank Enjoy you. your evenings. Enjoy the rest of Sastog. A huge shout out to Andy White for doing this podcast. Now you have what it takes to explore the sales landscape with Medic. Today, we talked about what Medic really is, the three pillars of professional buyers, illuminating the vocabulary difference between sales and marketing, the attributes of a productive sales and marketing partnership, and how Medic works in hybrid environments. Make sure that you give Protect the Hustle a five-star review and tell us what lesson Andy taught you from today's episode. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from Paddle Studios, dedicated to helping you build better SaaS.